President Biden said Ukraine isn't ready to join the NATO military alliance. Ukraine's war with Russia must end before it can join, according to Biden. If Ukraine were part of NATO, Biden noted it would put the alliance at war with Russia. NATO member states meet in Lithuania tomorrow, where the Ukraine's and Sweden's bid to join will be high on the agenda. The gunman in the 2019 El Paso Walmart shooting was sentenced. A self-described white nationalist killed 23 people at the Texas store in an attack targeting Latinos. Another 22 people were injured. The shooter, 24 years old, was given 90 consecutive life sentences by a federal judge. He didn't face the death penalty in that phase of his trial, but he could, in a Texas case, that could go to trial as early as next year. A lone Senate Republican's Senator Tommy Tuberville's bid to reverse a Pentagon policy ensuring abortion access for service members is delaying the smooth transfer of power at the highest echelons of the armed forces, including in the ranks of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as a months-long partisan dispute over social policy drags on. Well, the number of migrants at the southern border is down. Mexico has blocked many asylum seekers from crossing and has transported them to places deep in the country's interior. By the time the sun set on June 30th, the Supreme Court's final day, every goal on the conservatives' wish list had been achieved. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, reinterpreted the Second Amendment to make private gun ownership a constitutional right. It eliminated race-based affirmative action in university admissions. It elevated the place of religion across the legal landscape and even curbed the regulatory power of federal agencies. Now, the court under the previous chief justice, the undeniably conservative William Rehnquist, failed to accomplish a single one of these objectives. With Republicans back in the majority and the ex-president running for office again, the Freedom Caucus is grappling with what they stand for and how best to yield their potential power. The boisterous, boisterous group has not only been divided over key strategy and policy decisions, but also whether to support Donald Trump for president in 2024. Notably, several members of the group have endorsed other GOP candidates in the crowded primary field. Well, a federal judge has blocked a Wisconsin school district from requiring transgender students to use bathrooms and locker rooms that match the sex they were assigned at birth, while a lawsuit plays out against the school district. U.S. District Judge Lynn Alderman said that the uh, school district must allow a transgender student to use facilities that align with their gender identity, temporarily blocking a policy approved last month by the school board. You're listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this hour, I am joined by two of my favorite contributors, Alan Orr. He is an immigration attorney and founder of Orr Immigration Law Firm. Also in this hour, I'm joined by Professor Tyrone Howard. He is a professor of education at UCLA, and he is a host of KBL's KBLA's You Must Learn uh, airs every Sunday at 10 a.m., I believe. So make sure you check him out right here on KBLA. And in hour two, we are going behind the headlines and giving you the real story on the news that people are talking about. 
And today, that's the impact of the Supreme Court's decision overturning affirmative action in college admissions. Now, a lot of folks think that that decision doesn't impact them, particularly if they are not a student applying for college. But if you are one of the people that have made that assumption, I'm sorry to tell you, it is an erroneous assumption. If you are an employer or employee, which is probably pretty much most of the world, you have reasons to be concerned about that decision. Experts warn that even though the decision by the Supreme Court that on the face is just about affirmative action in admissions for colleges and universities, the decision could have a direct impact on the workplace. It could embolden people inside companies to use the decision as an excuse to push back on DEI initiatives and hiring of minorities. Now, some experts even believe that the conservative legal movement is likely to directly target DEI initiatives under the guise of discrimination in the same way that they went after affirmative action in higher education. In hour two, I have experts who are going to break all of this down for you and help you understand what you need to be concerned about or at least aware of as it relates to your workplace. So make sure you stick around. But before I bring on my guest, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. It is always a good time to celebrate and applaud Black women because I don't know, something about Black women, we just tend to be excellent in almost everything that we do. And today I'm giving up big kudos and bravo to the creators of the Emmy award-winning comedy series, A Black Lady Sketch Show. The fourth season of that show will be its last. Now this critically acclaimed HBO series wraps at a creative high point uh, its first three seasons earned 13, get that, 13 Emmy nominations. Among them were three historic wins for editing and directing. The series won back-to-back trophies for outstanding picture editing and for variety programming. Now, in a statement confirming the decision to end the show, HBO praised series creator and star Robin Thede as a visionary comedic talent and saluted the show's historic achievements. Now, Robin Thede, who also served as a showrunner, executive producer, and writer for Black Lady Sketch Show, framed the world in a Black woman's point of view with sketches that subverted traditional expectations. She riffed on relatable things like hair woes, ashy skin, and the politics of the Black church. And even when the show's subject matter had nothing to do with Blackness, which was rare, the show's very existence to have this show on air to be created by this Black comic was itself both historic and impactful. Now, for this year, Emmys, for this year's Emmys, HBO has already submitted a Black Lady sketch show for consideration in 30 categories, including the newly created outstanding scripted variety series. Uh, it is really phenomenal to see the kind of success that the show had. And some folks are asking, why is it ending, you know, after just four seasons? And, in, you know, listening and reading some of the comments from Robin, she said, look, we did a great job over the last four seasons. We want to end on this creative high. We want to end uh, with our show being submitted by HBO for these more than 
you know, two dozen categories, again, just showing the power that Black women have and, and the way that we are successful in telling our own stories. So congratulations, Robin, to you, to your crew. I hope you win all of those, uh, in all of those Emmy categories where you have been submitted. And this is not the last time that we are going to see Robin on HBO. She has a deal with HBO to produce and create other content. And she's actually developing a half hour comedy series entitled Disengagement. So make sure you stay tuned, follow and watch Robin Thede. She is incredibly talented. And if you haven't seen a Black Lady Sketch Show, you can still go to HBO On Demand and check it out because it is a phenomenal show. Uh, it's all about the culture. It's all about Black women. And it's all about celebrating us uh, with, of course, comedy. So check it out. A Black Lady Sketch Show. Robin Thede, again, to you, sister. I salute you. When we come forward, more on today's trending news and my expert contributors right here on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. Uh, in this hour, we are tracking today's trending news and breaking it all down for you. I'm joined by Alan Orr and Professor Tyrone Howard. Alan, uh, whenever I see a story about immigration, of course, I think of you. I go to your Twitter account to see what you have to say about it. So this report out that the number of migrants at the southern border is down uh, some of the stories I read said that it's down because of actions taken by the Biden administration as well as by the Mexican uh, government or the, Me the government of Mexico. Help us understand what's happening at the southern border. So <clears throat> I think the Biden administration is doing what they can without Congress's help to sort of manage the flow of our migrants coming to the border. And the border influx is down 70 percent because now the Biden administration basically has an online app for people to apply to get asylum to come into the United States. Uh, that is a lottery system, and that is a, not what we had in mind when we set up the asylum rules. So there are a lot of people who don't have internet access, don't have phones that take picture, aren't in areas where they can get Wi-Fi that are being denied access, and many of those people look, are brown or black, like myself, or speak a language different than Spanish and English and maybe French. So it disenfranchises a group of people, so I'm not shouting that out, but it is sort of controlling what's happening at the border. And unfortunately, you have not seen the news say one thing about that, of the success of this sort of program and it's sort of ending. What you see now is there were four or six states that were have re Republican governors that sent more people, their National Guard, to the border for no reason. You have uh, Governor Abbott, who has a failing infrastructure in his own country, spending money on building a wall that is making flood the state of Texas. And so what you have in Mexico, in addition to all these problems that we discussed with the United States, is that there is a Mexican scheme against black and brown people as well, in which they are incentivized to push people back. So many of the immigrants who would be standing outside the border now are further back in Mexico, one, because of climate. If we all know it's record heat in the United States from Arizona to Florida, so it's also hot at the border. So people are sort of avoiding that heat that's sort of down there, as well as sort of making it look like there's not a problem right now. Mexico does have a, an interest in making sure that the border remains open and that we don't have this great penalty of the Trump administration or DeSantis, right? You actually have the president of Mexico speaking against DeSantis in a very hard way and telling people not to go to Florida to even vacation anymore. So it is not, <clears throat> while we don't have the people on the television and the Biden administration, as well as the vice president are not getting their claim for sort of bringing down the numbers and ending with, with uh, the end of Title 42, uh, people still aren't getting the justice they deserve through asylum, but it's better. 
and but the news isn't covering it. and that's really the bad problem right because that is exactly what every republican runs on yeah it's kind of interesting professor howard because if there's not a full-blown border crisis these republicans have to make something up so uh alan said they're sending the national guard to the border even though there's no need to send the national guard to the border so if these numbers continue to uh, come down or to remain low in the way that they are now what are the republicans going to run on because they can't keep screaming the border the border the border yeah, I think Alan makes some really good points here, Ariba. And even if we continue to see the numbers plummet like they are, I think the Republicans will continue to try to tell us that the numbers aren't as 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 promising as they are. This is what the Republican agenda is these days. It's about sort of bait and switch, you know, hood wing bamboozle. Let me tell you what is truth is not really truth. And what's not really truth, let me tell you that that is truth, right? I think part of what we have to continue to understand is that uh, what was so abhorrent was to see some of the images that were being shown along the southern border over the last couple of months, right? The kind of, uh, you know, inhumane conditions that people were subjected to, uh, the pictures that were being shown of women and children uh, not being given the kind of appropriate support. Those kinds of images of human suffering is what Republicans love to exploit. Now, they'll talk about the fact that this is unacceptable at the southern border, but then you look at states like Mississippi, Georgia, Texas, Alabama, they have some of the highest poverty rates of Americans in the country, yet they will ignore the human suffering in their own respective states, but act as if it's such an atrocity to see the suffering of, of immigrants who are trying to get to this country. So I think this is all about bait and switch. Let me tell you something that your eyes don't see. Let me try to create a narrative that is not what the, rea what the reality is. And unfortunately, Ariba, you know this, many Americans buy it hook, line, and sinker, and that's the problem. Yeah, these antics... Uh... Alan, we're here in California and we keep getting busloads of immigrants bus to California, obviously for no apparent reason other than to get news headlines on Fox and to create, again, this image that, quote unquote, woke cities like Los Angeles, if we won't support, you know, closing the borders off, then we have to be responsible for these individuals. Do you think that's going to you're a lawyer, uh, Alan, let me ask you this. I know that governors like uh, Gavin Newsom and others are saying they want investigations of these governors in Texas and Florida who are obviously uh, defrauding these people, misleading them, lying to them and kidnapping them, you know, kidnapping these people and putting them on these mm -hmm. buses. Do you see any charges coming or should the DOJ be more aggressive in looking at what these governors are doing? Bingo, bingo, bingo. It should be the DOJ. It's a violation of international law to move children between states. And you saw that DeSantis was really selective in the last group of people. And even Abbott are making sure they're getting adults now because they did send some children to Martha's Vineyard, which is kidnapping and kidnapping under international law is a, something they should be in international court for. But beyond that, the Department of Justice knows that they're using people as pawns. And by moving people who enter the state in Texas to California, when they didn't want to go to California, it hurts their asylum process. They have to then wow. move their case to asylum, which could cost them years of backlog processing, which is just cruel to people in general. Plus, you promise them jobs which are not there. So a whole ton of misleading things. Florida is paying to have people, the state of Florida, the Republican control government has decided that they want to use up to $12 million to send people from other states <laughs> to other places. In the oh, United you mean not even, not even people in Florida? No, DeSantis took people from Texas. The original place to, to Martha's Vineyard are people that were in Texas that he lured from Texas to go to Martha's Vineyard. And then once again, they took people from Texas. So then they passed a rule saying that he could move them from any state. 
And the people, the product that he's sort of buying, the the mode of transportation are Republican funders. So they're just funneling the money through the system over and over again. And I would love, I mean, I think I know that Merrick Garland has his hands full with the trash that was left behind by the former administration. But I would love to see someone from civil rights come out swinging hard on these cases. And not just that, the state of Texas has set up their own border control. They are not allowed to parole the border. How long are we let people get away with that? It sends the wrong message to other states to start thinking, oh, well, we can just start our own law enforcement state because guess who they're arresting? 96% of the people that were picked up by them were people of, what? That's right, Hispanic mm. descent. And were many of them U.S. citizens? Absolutely. So were they violated? Yes. And did they say anything besides sorry? Do they have due process, right? Can Texas deport people from whatever they consider a country? Absolutely not. So all of those things are sort of fictions that we need to sort of help correct along the way. And even when we're sort of dealing with this at that level, right, there's still the black immigrants who aren't even getting to there, right? The black immigrant that died, the eight-year-old girl was a Haitian girl, right? That mm -hmm. Her mom said that she was sick. They said, no, she ain't sick. They ignored her. They said, she's sick, please take care of her. And then she died in custody. And then they had a funeral in New York City. But once again, this never happened before in any other administration where children were dying in custody. Yeah. Why do you think the DOJ, obviously, as you said, they're busy. They got thousands of people still being prosecuted because of the January 6th insurrection. They've got, you know, the, the myriad investigations involving Donald Trump. But why do you think that the uh, DOJ hasn't gotten more involved? I think they're afraid. There's a couple of things that I think that they think that every time they charge someone is political. And what I would love for them to know is that the political fight is over after the election is closed. And if you violate the law, you get the full repercussions. I think the former president has also enjoyed some lightness because he won an election and they don't want to be seen as political. Well, unfortunately, we're in a political scheme now and we need to prosecute everybody who breaks the law. Hmm. Yeah, it's just shocking to me that we're not seeing more being done legally because, as you said, they're, they're obviously international crimes, federal crimes that are being committed with this kidnapping of these individuals. Tyron, what, or Professor Howard, what are you making of Ron DeSantis? So he keeps engaging in all of these theatrics, trying to get attention, trying to, you know, suck up some of the oxygen that Donald Trump is, is sucking up. But every poll, every report is that his campaign is lagging substantially behind Donald Trump. Now it's early, obviously folks, it's the summer, people are on vacation, not necessarily thinking about politics, but for a guy who has done so well in Florida in two elections, uh, are you at all surprised that his, his uh, campaign is not having more success, that he's not getting more traction? Not really, because at the end of the day, if you look closely at DeSantis, really there's no there there. Uh, DeSantis has won, has run an election essentially off this anti-woke campaign. It's the cultural wars. He hasn't mm -hmm. offered any type of legislation. He hasn't uplifted any kind of policy. He hasn't talked about any kind of initiatives that have come out of the state of Florida that have been around reducing poverty, that have been cre about job creation, that have been about sort of, you know, reducing taxes, which is a Republican stalwart, right? So at the end of the day, I think what we have done has been much ado about nothing when it comes to Governor DeSantis. I think he used one issue, which is his sort of opposition to what he calls wokeness, to say he could rise that to a to a to a, not even a uh uh the election as president of the united states I don't know. I don't think he can even ride that to the Republican nomination because the way that Trump takes up so much air out of the room. But I'm not surprised he's stumbled. He he's he's socially awkward. Uh, he's not very quick on his feet. Uh, I, I just don't I don't think he is what people thought he would be. Folk, folks thought he could be, say, Trump, you know, the more reformed, polished version of Trump. 
Uh, yeah, okay, if that's a compliment, so be it. But at the end of the day, I think if DeSantis thinks he can win a general election with the way he's tried to be even farther right than Trump has been, I think he's sadly mistaken. And I think he's probably running this election under the premise that I will be there in the event that the legal woes that the former president has come to sort of remove him from the race, that I'll be left to kind of pick up the pieces and ride that to the way with the Republican nomination. If that's the way you want to win by default, I guess that's a, a win is a win. But I think there's been no real substantive kinds of ways in which we can think about DeSantis's campaign being anything that's inspiring or that's as aspirational or that says anything that how he can improve the American uh, the, the sort of outlook economy and what have you. And I'll also add this, Ariba. The other piece is that if you talk to black and brown folks on the ground in Florida, they will tell you that DeSantis has in, sort of enacted more policy that have taken them back 15, 20, 25, 30 years uh, with the Republican-controlled legislature restricting voting rights. Uh, when you look at unemployment, has been highest. It's been in black and brown communities. So if you do a deeper dive on his record, you begin to see that he's been bad, bad, bad. Yeah, no doubt about it. He obviously thought it would be a lot easier to transport his style of politics in Florida onto the national stage. And he's been uh, just making misstep after misstep. And, and Alan, the Freedom Caucus, that is the caucus that supports the most extreme candidates in the Republican Party, seems to be very divided over not only their you know Republican strategies and, and policy decisions, but many of them have not endorsed Trump. They have not endorsed him. Uh, what do you make of this, what appears to be chaos that the Freedom Caucus is in the midst of at this moment? And, you know, can DeSantis get out of this, you know, 20 point behind Donald Trump in the polls, which is where he has been and seems to stay? If he can't start to pick up some endorsements or something from folks who have power in the Republican base, like these Freedom Caucus members. Unfortunately, he's done. He's done. This is done for him. Unfortunately, he's down in the state of Florida. Even his own constituents have him down 20 points against Trump in the state of Florida that he won for two times. So that's a big statement towards him, as well as everybody thinks he's a joke and he doesn't have the personality to sort of hold the field. So there is no end game. So even if Trump doesn't make it, he won't be the number two because mm -hmm. already uh, Chris Christie is after him. So, you know, there's just no space for him in this world of hate. And Florida, as we say, is falling apart. And the news also isn't cover that. All the immigrants that left that started with the rules from July 1st, he has invalidated driver's license from other states, which you and I know isn't even valid under the Constitution, right? <laughs> what about the spare credit between states? How can you kiss one state's driver's license isn't a valid thing in your state? He is too big for his britches, and he is against <laughs> everything that he afforded. He went to Harvard, right? He is the elitist that he hates. Oh, don't go there, Alan. See, you, you're yes, just trying to... <laughs> don't, don't put him in proximity <laughs> to us folks that went to Harvard and, and lessen our degree. Uh, when we come forward, more about why Ron DeSantis can't win. I want to talk about young folks in the Supreme Court, how they might respond to some of these... Uh, rulings that have come out of the Supreme Court in this last year's term. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and you are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time. And I'm your host, Ariva Martin. We are tracking today's trending news with our expert contributors. And I also want to make you aware of a big event that's happening in Los Angeles. If you are in the Los Angeles area on July 15th, 2023, between 12 noon and 6 p.m., join Black Lives Matter in Lamert Park. They will be celebrating their 10th anniversary at the People's Justice Festival featuring Dr. Cornell West, who's also a candidate for president in the 2024 election. 
Now, this event is free to the public and will include performances, children's village, giveaways, speakers, vendors, and a healing justice space. Again, this is Black Lives Matter uh, 10th Anniversary People's Justice Festival on Saturday, July 15th, 2023, from 12 noon to 6 p.m. in Lemert Park in Los Angeles, featuring Dr. Cornell West. So make sure you check that out if you are in the area. All right, uh, Dr. Howard and Alan, I want to talk about this report coming out about the Southern Baptist Convention. Wow. So we know they evicted Saddleback Church. Uh, Rick Warren is very, very high profile, super successful a mega church leader because, you know, over the issue of women pastors. And they've taken this really hardline position about women pastoring churches. And now the uh, members of their church, Black members, organizations or Black churches who are a member of this organization are saying this decision uh, could have a negative and disproportionate impact on African-Americans. What do you make, Alan, of this rule? Obviously, this is a church organization. They can decide to run their church however they choose. But boy, to be thinking in 2023 uh, and to be making a decision about women and, and denying women an opportunity to pastor churches, it seems whew, anachronistic. I, I don't know what word to use, but it, it's troubling on so many levels. What are you making of it? Oh, well, first, I would say, let me do it this way. I'm a big tennis fan. So we didn't mention the women who are still in the tennis play. And one of them is uh, Madison Keys. She's a black girl, black woman, or father's black, or mom's white. So I believe in that parody. And I think what the church is doing is crazy. I grew up in the church. People just finished vacation Bible school. Probably <laughs> almost 90% of that was ran by women. So if you want to have your war on that, then your church will be going on the great decline, just like the Catholic church. So you need to pick your battles. I think it's absolutely crazy. It's not biblical. Using the Bible in that sort of weapon way as we use it against women, as we use it against black people. I mean, that's exactly what black people should hear. The Bible was used against you in the exact same way that they're planning to use this against women in leadership's role. You are crazy. Some of the most powerful women are the women in the Bible. Where was Martha? Where was Mary? So skip me with all of that. I think it's absolutely crazy. Delete. Block. No, thank you. Yeah, I, I was really <laughs> shocked, Professor Howard, that they were willing to reject Rick Warren's appeal to be reinstated. Again, Saddleback Church is, you know, one of the nation's largest uh, Southern Baptist congregations or was, you know, before he was kicked out of the organization. Uh, everybody probably has read, you know, Purpose Driven Life or has heard something about Rick Warren. And they were willing to let him go. That that really shocked me. Are you surprised that this organization in its effort to maintain its patriarchy was willing to let someone as big as Rick Warren go? Not at all, because let's be frank about this, Ariva. White supremacist, heteronormative patriarchy is alive and well, and it manifests itself in many aspects of our society. And unfortunately, the reality is that the church is one of those spaces. I mean, if, if the Southern Baptist Convention is willing to let go 4,000, potentially 4,000 of its church uh, churches that fall under its guise, what does that tell you? They're willing to lose up to a tenth 
of their different uh, church sort of entities. So I think what happens is that you always have those entities that have power, will take whatever steps they can to maintain and create power. This really goes to something we talked about before with the whole anti-woke, you know, Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis sort of, you know, malarkey. This idea that they are coming for us and that they is black and brown folks, that they are queer folks, that they are women, that they are poor folks. And the one place we can't let the they come and take over is in our pulpits. So I'm not surprised at all, because at the end of the day, we know the role that, that religion has played in the control and domination of masses all over the globe. And so this is yet deeply disturbing, yet not surprising. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, the church is like many organizations, talking out of both sides of his mouth because this organization had been recruiting and had been growing its Black and Latino uh, congregations, you know, adding more Black and Latino churches uh, to its organization. And now to basically say to those organizations, we don't care, we'll lose you. As you said, we're going to center whiteness. We're going to center white supremacy. We're going to center males. And patriarchy, even if it means we lose thousands and thousands of churches and members, and even if it means we weaken our organization. Uh, how do you think, though, uh, Alan, when I think about the church, so many people, Black folks in particular, I mean, I shouldn't say Black folks in particular, but I'm going to say Black people because that's who we yeah. all are, yeah. you know, grow up in a church and we're taught to respect the, mm. the, the <laughs> hierarchy in the church and we're taught to respect uh, what we are taught, even when those teaching the lessons aren't necessarily qualified to teach the lessons. Uh, so trying to get Black folks to be critical thinkers when it comes to issues of religion can sometimes be challenging, which is why I'm assuming some of these Black churches, one, are even in this organization, and that so many have even stayed. Because I I'm certain that if they're this sexist, you know, it's sexism and racism or sister and brother. So I'm sure this isn't just about sexism. It's probably racism as well. Right. So I, I agree. I think the professor said it in the educational sense. So sorry, I was so on the street with it, with the block and delete. But I will say it in this way. I think the understanding is that supremacists have found that it is cool to be racist, right? That's what we're seeing from the Supreme Court. It's cool to be sexist. You get a stronger base when you are against everybody than you do when you have a big tent. And so then you have your true followers who will follow you no matter what. So I think it is sort of a litmus test for what this church wants to be. And they don't care that they're not opening the doors to everyone else. They know who they have in the room and they're betting on that future and they're betting on that control because they see it also happening in politics, right? It's not just there, it's in politics too. We've seen we've seen court decisions come down recently to sort of speak to the sort of divide and understanding of how people see the world. So it is a political move and choice that they're making and they're deciding that yeah i don't need what i i need that five percent it's going to give me no matter what because i'm losing across the board and and there's a weakness that they will soon find i hope this country and this democracy soon find that is not a winner this is that is not a winning proposition yeah we have to imagine professor uh howard that the majority of the the white men making this decision are men over 40 over 50 and probably over 60 some may be over 70 years old but are you encouraged by young voters and what you, you know, what I'm thinking their response is going to be to the ending of this Supreme Court's term. I mean, literally, uh, Justice uh, Roberts, his court, even though some would say that Justice uh, William Rehnquist was more conservative or equally conservative than, you know, some of the most conservative voices on the court, Rehnquist didn't get accomplished what 
Roberts has gotten under his tenure as chief justice. I mean, we're talking uh, issues related to guns, related to you know the regulatory power of federal agencies, obviously abortion, affirmative action. I, I'm just yeah. wondering, as, as a professor that deals with a lot of students, you talk to a lot of students, how are students viewing where this country is moving, where the Supreme Court is taking this country to, and what you expect to be their response when we, uh, you know, enter into 2024 and we have elections coming up? Uh, think about that when we come forward. We're going to talk about how young people uh, might respond to these decisions about women pastors as well as uh, the Supreme Court and its ultra, ultra conservative rulings over the past year. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Professor Howard, some experts are saying they are not expecting uh, a significant backlash from the decision overturning affirmative actions uh, in college admissions in the way that we saw after the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year. And the reason they're saying is because they said the, the decision is quite popular, uh, contrary to what many people may believe. In fact, this uh, poll uh, survey was done by economist YouGov the Economist YouGov poll says that even African-Americans approve of the decision by more than two to one. And they're saying that that polling is in line with surveys conducted before the decision, which showed that six in 10 Americans supported the idea of banning the use of race and ethnicity in admissions. Uh, another poll by ABC showed that Americans approved of it by a 20% margin. What do you make of this? Is this consistent with what you're seeing amongst your college students? Yeah, I've seen those data, Ariva, and they've been quite troubling for the reasons that you can probably imagine is that, you know, why I and, and yourself and a lot of other folks were really deeply troubled by the court's decision on affirmative action. The, the, the data shows that much in the way that the country was uh, sort of in favor of Roe v. Wade, they're in, they're in favor of the dismantling of affirmative action. When I talk to many African-American students, uh, there is a strong sentiment that they think that issues of race and ethnicity should matter. So they were very much opposed to the, the court's ruling. But the issue becomes this, uh, Ariba, in having conversation with many of my Latinx students, I think that's where we see there is more support for the court's decision. And we know that's a much larger population of, of the student of, of student of color pie, if you will. I think that, that the way in which you see many uh, black voters sort of being solidly squared with democratic policies and, and the democratic uh, sort of you know initiatives, that's not so much the case with many of our, our, our Latinx and our Asian American uh, brothers and sisters, where they tend to lean much more conservatively. So those data are troubling. And let's not remember, here in liberal California, it was only a couple of years ago when Proposition what 16, which would have ended Proposition 209, failed really miserably here in the state of California. And you had a lot of black and brown folks who were the ones who were saying that they thought that there should not be any preference for uh, race or ethnicity when it comes to uh, when it comes to issues of admission. But I will say this: part of what I hope these folks don't realize this is a very slippery slope. And if we're denying admission today around opportunities for black and brown folks, it will be in the workplace tomorrow. It will be in contracts after that. So it's only a matter of time before these issues come to your workplace. So be careful what you ask for because you might just get it. Yeah, I guess I'm a little shocked, uh, Alan, by these stats as it relates to African Americans. Now the the polls show that. Black folks, uh, 
still by probably a margin of, you know, some percentage support affirmative action, but it is not at the rate that you would expect. And it, according to this, just 19% of Black Americans felt that it had, uh, you know, benefited from some kind of affirmative action in college admission. So if you were to take these polls at face value, then we're not likely to see this decision being a galvanizing force in the way that we saw the decision overturning Roe v. Wade. That that could be true, but I think, you know, I'm a philosophy major, so the way they ask the question considers what the answer is, and I think that's the problem, that it was baked answers with regard to what affirmative action is, and people are confused about it, what it is, right? Because even with affirmative action for the time that we've had it, there is no more than 10% of Black students in any of those elite schools for the last 50 years. So it isn't as like affirmative action brought some type of parity when we represent 13 to 14% of the population. So when you start talking about this sort of understanding what affirmative action is and sort of defining these evils, you always find that they go to the smallest minority within the group, the trans community, 1% of the world. Oh my God, we're afraid of them. Trans kids, maybe 0.5% of all kids in school, we're afraid of them, right? So you sort of have this sort of concept within you to take that villain and make them the monster and the boogeyman. And I think that people may not respond to it appropriately, but the numbers in California bear out the problem with removing that race consideration since that proposition of the fewer numbers of Black people that are in those classrooms. And for me, I go back and I say, do I really give a damn? I'm an HBCU grad. And I think it's going to push people to HBCUs where excellence is going to be performed. Because as we know, with the exception of you, most of the lawyers and doctors that are in the Black community graduated <laughs> from HBCUs. So you two oh, votes, right? Oh, come on, Alan. So, well, hey, Whoa. I'm here. I'm going to represent. Whoa. So I'm saying in that uh, world, when you sort of build those things again for yourself and that in, in institutional knowledge, it removes something from the table. I think that there's something odd for me that you must understand that a Black person sits in a room full of white people and think I'm only here because of my race, not because of my grades, not because of my attitude. And the issue with this is once anybody got into any of those schools, they took the same damn test. They went to the same damn courses. They had the same damn graduate career and they graduated and they did well. So the affirmative action didn't make them do better. It just opened the access to the room, which proved that it sort of worked. So for me, it is a fiction from the very beginning. And they just want to say, oh, black people are taking something from you. Somebody else is getting something from you because of their race. Well, let me tell you what is because of race. Segregation happened because of race. Black people were slaves because of race. So you can't tell me you're going to fix that without considering race. Jackson Kadaji Brown is absolutely correct. We are now weaponizing race in such a way it will never, ever work again to repair. They're saying, oh, it can't be a consideration. Not for Black farmers, not for Black students, not for people who were victimized by the community, even with their paper and videos. So it's crazy to me. It's absolutely crazy. And I think when your second hour today is going to tell people exactly what the story is, because everything we got everywhere else was because of Brown v. Board of Education. And people need to understand how they're going to build on this ruling to sort of take away everything in the workplace. And DEI has already fallen to the wayside in two states, already been removed. So it is a very real fear for people. Okay, I'm going to put aside the shade, Alan. <laughs> We're going to put that aside and ask Professor Howard. He does raise a good point. If you live in California and you saw the huge drop in students at UC schools after 209 was passed. How is it, do you think the, the young people you're talking to today, they don't have any memory of that? They don't have any knowledge of that? Because it's kind of puzzling to me that, and, and Alan is right, it's how you ask the question, it's a hard mm -hmm. issue mm -hmm. to poll on. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So it may be just that the polling is bad, but assuming folks understand the question and are answering the right question with the right response, what do you make of that? I mean, UCLA had like literally no black folks uh, after right. 209 and probably still has very few black folks. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. why aren't students up, you know, outraged in a way that they were over Roe v. Wade? Yeah, you know, that's a, I think it's a... So look, I'm an affirmative action baby, right? I came up to, in college in the 80s where, you know, we were trying to get opportunity, right? And so when we were admitted to places like UC, there was no shame. There was no stigma because we knew we had done all the same things that other students done, white and otherwise, to get into those college and universities. And it was up to us to prove that we belonged there. For some reason today, uh, Ariva, I think there are many young black students who feel like, I don't want that stigma. I don't want to be seen as someone who is inferior. Oh, let Despite me stop the, and get right there, Professor Howard. Would they, do they care about the legacy admission stigma? With that I, yeah, same black they, student say, I don't want to be the stigma because my daddy's name is on the building? No, I don't think they I don't think they know about that stigma. That's the that's oh. the problem here. I think we have to do a better job of helping them to understand that listen, average white students have been getting into Harvard for centuries. Below average white students have been getting into Yale and all these other high Ivy League schools for centuries. And those folks don't mind one iota about being labeled as uh, legacy admissions. We have to talk to they young black folks. They brag about it. I mean, they brag about it. I know. This is the point, right? I think we have to tell black students that, look, if you get in, you are highly qualified, you are highly capable, you have the intellectual gifts and skills to be successful. All we need, James Brown said it best, I don't need anybody to do anything for me. Just All I need you to do is open the door, I'll do it myself. All we want and have asked for is opportunity here. Yes, that's troubling to me, uh, Professor Howard and, and Alan, that young Black students don't know uh, or that we haven't done a good enough job about this legacy admissions. We started to get more information about that with the Varsity Blue scandal involving USC and mm-hmm. you know fake resumes and fake applications for students. But uh, are you hopeful, Alan, that this, uh, I guess there's a lawsuit now filed by civil rights organizations challenging legacy admissions. Are you hopeful at all that that lawsuit might end that practice in private universities? Or do you think that lawsuit is kind of DOA? I, I, so I know some of the lawyers that are sort of moving into the system. So I'm going to wish them the best. I wouldn't have filed that suit, but you know, once again, you know, I don't know if that's going to bring the answer. That's not a solution for me. That's just once again tearing down the verdict, setting everything on fire, right? So, yeah. What, what are you thinking, Professor Howard? Do you see private universities ending? I know some have. Some have ended their legacy admissions. Do you see that being widespread across all these elite institutions? No, I don't. Let me tell you why. Reba. Follow the money, because there's there's mm-hmm. too much money that comes to these universities from high profile alum and donors, and they are not going to allow that money flow to stop because they continue to benefit from legacy admissions. Plain and simple. Yeah, that's what I uh, pretty much think about that issue. I'm not sure about the lawsuit. I haven't seen the causes of action, but I I probably agree with you too, Alan. It's an uphill battle in terms of getting something done on the legal front and voluntarily ending legacy admission. I can't see uh, places like that horrible school, Harvard, doing that, Alan. Oh my God, that would be just horrendous. We can't imagine them doing anything like that. But I, I do feel like we got to do more, Professor Howard, if Black students are not feeling empowered, if they're not feeling good about getting into these institutions, if they're somehow walking around feeling inferior, then we we have a lot more work to do on this issue because uh, we all know that you're not getting a spot 
that otherwise would go to a white mm -hmm. person uh, because of affirmative action. That's just not mm -hmm. how affirmative action works, uh, not works. at all. Uh, we are out of time. A lot more to discuss on this issue. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Tyrone Howard and Alan Orr. You check out Professor Howard's new show on Saturdays at 10 a.m. You must learn. And Alan, keep fighting the good fight for uh, immigration and clients in your practice. When we come forward, we're going to talk about how this affirmative action decision is likely to bleed into the workplace and impact employers and employees alike. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. President Biden said Ukraine isn't ready to join the NATO military alliance. Ukraine's war with Russia must end, according to Biden, before it can join. If Ukraine were part of NATO, Biden noted, it would put the alliance at war with Russia. NATO member states meet in Lithuania tomorrow where the Ukraine's and Sweden's bids to join will be high on the agenda. The gunman in the 2019 El Paso Walmart shooting was sentenced. A self-described white nationalist killed 23 people at the Texas store in an attack targeting Latinos. Another 22 people were injured. The shooter, just 24 years old, was given 90 consecutive life sentences by a federal judge. He didn't face the death penalty, but could in a Texas case that could go to trial early next year. A lone Senate Republican, Senator Tommy Tuberville, his bid to reverse a Pentagon policy ensuring abortion access for service members is delaying the smooth transfer of power at the highest echelons of the armed forces, including in the ranks of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as a months-long partisan dispute over social policy drags on. The number of migrants at the southern border is down. Mexico has blocked many asylum seekers from crossing and has transported them to places deep in the country's interior. Now, Republicans are not acknowledging the work that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have done to decrease the number of migrants at the southern border. By the time sunset on June 30th, the Supreme Court's final day, every goal on the conservative wish list had been achieved. It overturned Roe v. Wade, reinterpreted the Second Amendment to make private gun ownership a constitutional right, eliminated race-based affirmative action in university admissions, elevated the place of religion across the legal landscape, and even curbed the regulatory power of federal agencies. Now, the court under the previous conservative chief justice, William Rehnquist, failed to accomplish a single one of these policy initiatives. With Republicans back in the majority and the ex-president running for office again, the Freedom Caucus is grappling with what they stand for and how best to wield their potential power. The very loud uh, and sometimes obnoxious group has not only been divided over key strategy and policy decisions, but also whether to support Trump for president in 2024. Notably, several members of the group have endorsed other GOP candidates in the crowded primary field. A federal judge has blocked a Wisconsin school district from requiring transgender students to use bathrooms and locker rooms that match the sex they were assigned at birth while a lawsuit plays out against the school. A U.S. district judge said Thursday that the district must allow a transgender student to use facilities that align with their gender identity, temporarily blocking a policy approved last month by the school board. 
you are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is our two. And in our two, we go behind the headlines and we give you the real story on the news that people are talking about. And today, that's the impact. We're talking about the impact of the Supreme Court's recent decisions, uh, particularly the decision overturning affirmative action in college admissions. Now, many folks who are not 17 or 18 years old, not graduating from high school, not uh, planning on applying to college may be thinking this decision doesn't have anything to do with them. They may say, you know, when the, the news about the decision came down, they may have felt indifferent uh, towards the decision, particularly if they don't have college age kids. But today we're gonna talk about how this decision, the decision that on its face is about admissions in colleges and universities is really about so much more and how this decision could impact just about everybody in the United States. Uh, most folks, unless you are retired or you are a student, you are probably an employer or an employee. And if you fall into one of those two categories, you have every reason to be concerned about the Supreme Court's decision overturning affirmative action in college admissions. Uh, this decision could have far-reaching implications in today's workplace. Uh, experts warn that it could embolden people inside companies to use the decision as an excuse to push back on DEI initiatives. Uh, some believe that the same conservative groups, nonprofit groups, uh, billionaire conservative activists that have led many of these movements uh, to overturn affirmative action, to restrict the rights of the LGBTQ community, uh, to increase the rights of gun owners. They believe that these same groups uh, may be targeting DEI initiatives under the guise of discrimination and that we may see uh, a round of lawsuits filed by some of these conservative organizations targeting DEI programs. We are already seeing uh, certain states that are uh, defunding, I should say, or who have made it very clear by legislation that they will not fund DEI programs. We know that certain universities have already indicated that they are withdrawing funding for DEI, DEI programs uh, in their universities or programs that have existed uh, within their universities. And we have also seen uh, lots of folks in Hollywood, jobs that were created after the racial reckoning of the, the summer of 2020 following the murder of George Floyd, when we saw a lot of companies you know, making aggressive steps to increase their DEI uh, A departments, bringing in DEI directors and professionals. Many of those same companies have either fired those individuals, have reassigned them, or have substantially limited their power. So it really, you know, causes me to think, uh, is the days, are the days, I should say, of DEI done? Uh, is there still a viable uh, market in corporations, in universities, in institutions to uh, address issues of inequalities, to uh, promote initiatives that will increase diversity in the workplace. Uh, when we come forward, I'm, I'm going to be joined by two of the nation's leading experts on the topic of DEI in the workplace and on the topic of race 
uh, and how it impacts institutions. Mary Frances Winters is with us as well as Professor David Eichard. Uh, stay with us when we come forward more on this topic that impacts millions and millions of Americans right here on KBLA Talk 1580. You are watching and listening to Reva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Reva Martin. And in hour two of the show, we are talking about college admissions, affirmative action, the decision by the Supreme Court to uh, ban the use of race in college admissions and what that means for institutions other than colleges and universities. Uh, now that the Supreme Court has declared affirmative action policies uh, unconstitutional, Questions are arising over whether the court's decision will affect diversity efforts in the workplace. Diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, otherwise known as DEI initiatives, have long been taken on by companies trying to diversify their employees and leaders. And we saw after the racial reckoning following the police killing of George Floyd in 2020, many more businesses promised, committed to prioritizing diversity initiatives in hiring and retention. We even saw Chick-fil-A, a company long thought of as uh, super conservative for its stance on LGBTQ issues, we saw them voice a commitment to diversity and create a new vice president role for DEI. Uh, but at the same time, in the last couple of months, we have seen Disney, Warner Brothers, the Film Academy, and even Netflix head of diversity. Uh, we've seen those companies' heads of diversity either leave the companies or, in the case of Warner Brothers, be laid off. Now, we know uh, affirmative action, some say in higher education, is not the real deal. It's not the main event. It's not where the conservative right is really focused on. The main event, according to some, is the workplace. This is where you can impact, you know, uh, socioeconomic status. This is where Black folks can close the Black-white wealth gap. And this is the place that many folks think conservative rights are going to target next. Uh, joining me to help us make sense of all of this is Mary Frances Winters. She's the founder and CEO of the Winters Group, a global diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice consulting firm that celebrates its 40th anniversary next year. And Professor David Eichardt, he's a professor of African-American uh, studies at Vanderbilt University. He's also the author of a new book whose title I love. It's called Lovable Races, Magical Negroes, and White Messiahs. Welcome, Professor, and welcome back, my friend, Mary Frances. Uh, I, I want to start with you, Professor Eichardt. Your book, although not specifically on this topic, obviously touches on so many of these themes. And I read that you were inspired to write the book after watching Tony Soprano on The Sopranos, a show that I love, uh, about how ma uh, masterfully the writing was and how the writers got us to overlook Tony Soprano's violent, his, you know, his violence, his homophobia, his racism, all the things that made him a gangster. Uh, the writers had us feeling sorry for Tony, giving him empathy, uh, you know, really feeling sorry that uh, whenever he was in any kind of danger. So talk to us about the lessons we can learn from Tony Soprano uh, as we try to make sense of what the Supreme Court has done on affirmative action and may do as it relates to DEI in the workplace. Can you hear me now? 
Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was I was muted there for a second. Um, but the uh, the scene that you reference uh, in The Sopranos is one in which the rival gang was using a black uh, group of black hitmen to take out Tony Soprano to distract from the fact that it was actually them that was trying to take him out. And it's it's the closing scene of the, uh, the particular episode. And Tony's getting in his car and he looks in the rearview mirror and he sees some men come up on the, the driver's side. Then he looks in the on the driver's side mirror and sees them coming up from the other side. And he manages to open the door and, and jam the gun and then shoot somebody else. And I'm I remember I'm screaming, yeah, get him, get him. And he's calling the moolies and N-words and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then as as you know, as the adrenaline, you know, goes, I'm like, whoa, what just happened? Wait a minute. What did they and I'm I was I was in some ways intrigued and deeply disturbed by the fact that this narrative and this storyline had encouraged me to empathize with Tony Soprano as an everyman figure. Like mm-hmm. we are him. We are he's sensitive. He loves his mom. He's going through problems with his family. He's struggling with issues of morality. So they humanize what is essentially a monster. Mm-hmm. Right. And to the to the extent to which you find yourself rooting for him. Oh, yeah. And and when when for every for every reason, Tony Soprano should go out. Right. He's killed many people. Ruth. He's a ruthless person. He's like you said, he's a homophobe. He's a a xenophobia. Any phobe you got, Tony had. Right. Right. Um, And the reason why that's so fascinating for me, um, even when we have these conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, is I've always, I've never been fond of the way that we talk about this because we talk about like diversity and equity and inclusion as if that is actually right, the goal without actually talking about why we have diversity, equity, and inclusion programs is because of white supremacy. But we can't say white supremacy. Why? Because it offends white people. So we're not talking about white supremacy. We're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And why that's important is because it creates the impression that somehow black folks are getting things that they don't deserve that white people aren't getting. Mm-hmm. Because we're not talking about white supremacy. Because white supremacy, I was on that AP, I was one of the scholars on that AP group that put together African-American studies uh, uh, course, right? Right. And what I learned from the AP board as we were at, at that conference was that over 90% of the students that get accepted by the top 20 universities in the country, we're talking about the, all the Ivies, the Vanderbilts, the Dukes of the world, right? 90% of those students that get accepted to their universities come from just 3% of the high schools in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like process that. So mm-hmm. 3%, 3%, of high schools, right, are the ones that fill up the top 20 universities. That means 97%, right, right. of high schools are not where, are not going to, right, you think you got a chance to go to Harvard? If you're not in that top 3%, like, you don't, you don't, you, ha- you don't have a, right, you don't have a chance. Right. And when you start looking at those top 3%, they're in white, upper middle class, neighborhoods, they have legacies of funding, they have, they're in places where 
the property values feed into the schools if it's a public school, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're essentially these super high-powered, highly um, financially supported institutions mm -hmm. that perpetuate a dynamic of privilege that then puts these kids in a situation where they can have access to these schools. And not only that, the schools literally are going directly to those high schools to recruit. Right. Right. So when you understand how stacked the system is on behalf of white supremacy, then we should be talking about like what black folks are getting. Instead, what we should be talking about is what the barriers that institutionalized white supremacy over these centuries have created to prevent us from being able to get a fair shot. It would be great if if my son was being judged on his merits. That would be fantastic. What black mm -hmm. person doesn't want that? Mm -hmm. Right. But he's not. We live in a racist society, a white supremacist society. Right. Right. Donald Trump. Right. Got the second most presidential vote in the history of presidential voting. The only reason he's not the president again is because Biden broke that record. So with all the xenophobia, the homophobia, the racism, all that stuff that he was spouting, all that toxicity, which was even worse than when he first ran, instead of depressing the turnout, instead of depressing the votes, it increased them significantly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And let me let you jump in here. Uh, Mary Francis, you, you work on the ground. You go into these corporations. You and I had a lot of conversations after uh, George Floyd was murdered, that kind of summer uh, of reckoning. Uh, I, I can remember vividly some of the stories you told me about the, uh, the, the increase in activity and the demand and then how it started to wane. Uh, what are you seeing today and, and how are you feeling about how this affirmative action decision might impact some of those companies uh, that were already, you know, stepping back from the commitments they made in the summer of 2020? Yeah, they're definitely stepping back and they continue to they continue to step back. I want us I want to put this out there though. Let us not conflate DEI with affirmative action. They are two different things. They are both needed, but they are two different things. So affirmative action is about complying with legal statutes. Diversity, equity, inclusion is voluntary in organizations. Most often the diversity office and the affirmative action office are not the same and not the same place in the corporate world. Affirmative action sits over in compliance. Diversity, equity, inclusion sits in a place, you know, in, in HR. And if they're really, if they've really been progressive, the, the chief diversity officer will actually report to the CEO. So there's all this evidence, all this research that shows that diversity actually uh, enhances uh, the bottom line. There have been studies, and, and specifically racial diversity. There have been a, several <laughs> studies that have been done that show if you have more racial diversity in your organization, you are going to have better organizational outcomes. And let's be clear, the only reason that, you know, I've been doing this work for 40 years now, we used to have to write these big, thick business cases. We talked about the business case for diversity. As soon as these corporations heard, oh, there's some money to be made, you know, on, on Black folks, or because they're consumers and we're not really targeting them. Oh, if we do ads that, like the, the uh, cutest little monkey in the jungle, we're going to lose money because people are going to complain, you know, because we're not uh, being... Um, racially sensitive. Oh, so we need black people so they can tell us, right? So a lot of the employee resource groups in, or in organizations, right? They're now called business resource groups because what they do is they help the business to uh, understand the markets. And so the motivation for diversity, equity, and inclusion 
is about um, it's about capitalism. It's it's about um, it's about making more money, right? So now the way that they get tied is that uh, through affirmative action, that these are employed federal contractors who have a hundred or more employees are required to take affirmative action based on Executive Order One One Two Four Six, Lyndon B. Johnson, nineteen sixty five, after the Civil Rights Act. They said if you do business with the government. You have to set goals, not quotas. Quotas are illegal, but everybody talks about them being quotas. Quotas are illegal. So we want you to reach parity. You, we want you to correct harm. So affirmative action is kind of, it is really a reparations kind of thing. So we, you, you did all this harm all these years. Now we want you to correct that harm and we want you to reach parity based on labor force availability, right? And so you look at those statistics and you say you've got X number of black accountants out there. You should be uh, matching, you know, that, that, that number in your organization. That's what affirmative action is about. Is saying let's level the playing field. Well, let, me, let me just let me just push back a little, Mary Francis. What everything you said is legally accurate. Obviously, the affirmative action decision was decided under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, and discrimination in the workplace is under Title VII. Seven, they're, right? They're totally separate. But I don't think we should be so. Uh, I don't see it as black and white as you see it, and I don't think those conservative groups. Are, no, they're aren't going to find a way to conflate the two because, as I said, the name of the game is if we can prevent diversity in the workplace, we can continue to stifle economic growth of minorities, African-Americans, and continue to widen this wealth gap that we see. So we do that if we can suppress the number of Black students that get into college. We do that if we can suppress the number of Black folks that uh, get hired, the number of Black folks that get promoted. Uh, in you know jobs, so uh, yeah. I, I, no, I'm agreeing. No, let me let me finish. I'm, I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing with all of that. But the oh, so I gotta keep hope alive. I gotta have hope here. The oh, the hope that we have. Okay, is, hold your hold on to your hope. Okay. Uh, we're okay. gonna take some other news uh, and then talk about some sports and other things. So when we come forward, I want to talk about your hope. I want to get the professor to weigh in on, you know, these groups that do see the workplace as, you know, where the money is. That's where the money is and and how they might go after some of these DEI programs, even though technically, as you said, DEI is not affirmative action. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back and you are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time. And I'm your host, Ariva Martin. In this hour, we are talking about the implications of the Supreme Court's decision overturning affirmative action in college admissions and what might it mean for the workplace. I'm joined in this hour by Mary Frances Winters, who's the founder and CEO of the Winters Group. She's been uh, at this working on equity, inclusion, and diversity for 40 years. And also joining her is uh, Professor David Eichardt. He's a professor of African-American studies at Vanderbilt University. And he has a new book out called Lovable Racist, Magical Negroes and White Messiahs. Okay, Mary Francis, you said you are keeping hope alive. What are you hopeful about? All right, so I'm hopeful that these organizations and these corporations that have been at diversity, equity, and inclusion in some form or another um, since the 80s um, are not going to um, go totally rogue and crazy and renege on these commitments. And what, one of the reasons that I have hope alive is because the Gen Zs in the workplace um, require and demand equity um, and inclusion. So I think we really have to be strong in keeping separate affirmative action, which is still absolutely needed. That's the law. 
And if they're going to dismantle Executive Order 11246, Civil Rights Act of 1964, which I guess they can do, then it would, you know, it would not be required. Right now, affirmative action is required for those big organizations that are government, that are government contractors. Organizations say, though, that our motivation for diversity, equity and inclusion is because we make better business decisions when we have more inclusion. And it's been proven. And if they don't believe that anymore. So we've already seen some corporations come forward and say, we are still as committed to diversity, equity, inclusion. We need more of them to come forward. We need to stop conflating the two. We need to have people know the truth and the actual facts about the difference between diversity, equity, inclusion. And because diversity, the D part is the representation. That's the hiring part. The equity and inclusion part, that talks about repairing past harm. We just wrote a book called Racial Equity at, uh, at Work. And it talks about, I mean, racial justice at work. And it puts the J in there. And it says, we've got to correct the past harm. Yet I know that's out there. That's not popular today. But our voices have to be louder than those voices who are the voices that are trying to dismantle. Because you're absolutely right. It is about racism, pure and simple. Um, however, we're not, I don't think our voices are loud enough to talk about uh, what we lose if we continue to do this. We're losing everything. I mean, they're after everybody, right? LGBTQ, women's rights, they're after everybody. And I think that our voices have to be much, much louder um, to support um, not dismantling uh, these efforts in, in organizations. Commitments that they've made, they've made billions of dollars of commitments, which they haven't spent, you know, since, since 2020. We, we, we know that um, as well. Now, those commitments were primarily, though, loans and investments that would, uh, that would help the organization and not necessarily help Black people in the, you know, in the workplace. Um, we, we got to keep fighting. And so that, that's the hope that I have. Are you feeling as hopeful, uh, Professor, that the two, Affirmative Action and DEI, uh, will remain as, as constructs separate? Uh, or are you feeling less uh, you know, encouraged by what you're seeing this Supreme Court in this last term do? I guess I'm feeling like nothing is off the table for them. And these conservatives have accomplished so much this is not something they woke up yesterday and decided to do. This has been a methodical 50 plus year strategy. And why would they stop given all the success that they have given the six, three court that they have knowing that any decision, whether you win it at the state level, or at the district court level has to end up before this six, three court. And they have shown themselves willing to do the bidding of the Republican party. Yeah. As you'll recall, uh, during Trump's second impeachment, uh, when Liz Cheney voted to impeach and, of course, faced the ire of her own um, fellow uh, Republicans for taking that stand. And after, of course, it failed to go through because the Republicans just simply didn't have the courage to um, of their convictions about what what occurred, uh, Liz Cheney said, and she said the quiet part out loud, she says, what we're doing is risking becoming the party of white supremacy. Like, I didn't say that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, black politician didn't say that, right? Black academic, Liz Cheney, who comes from a long line <laughs> Of conservatives. Right, of conservatives. Father was the vice president of the United States under second Bush, right? She said, the quiet part, we're, right? Do we want to become the party 
of white supremacy. She's privy to those conversations behind closed doors. She knows what they're talking about. And they're talking about white supremacy and the white supremacy vote, right? So when we start talking about um, the logics of racism, right? The one thing that we have to abandon is that what we're what we're dealing with is a formula in which you show people, hey, look, racism is actually counterproductive. Racism actually destroys white families, destroys white economies. Look at the state of Mississippi. Because of their refusal year after year to comply with that 1950s, right, right, just right, um, um, legislation that came down basically eliminating Jim Crow because they refused to comply, shutting down schools, shutting down parks, right? That mm -hmm. they emerged as having the worst educational system in the United States. And they're still at the bottom, right? Because of racism. And yet it still holds all of this capital because racism is not about logic. It's about belonging. It's about tribalism, right? So people will literally go down to this with this sinking ship because the capital of whiteness gives them a sense of purpose. And so when we talk about how we are to combat this, first and foremost, I black folks have always been resilient. This is not new. Fighting white supremacy, having setbacks, this is not a new thing. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Carol Anderson talks about this in White Rage. Anytime there's any type of movement towards black progress, which is a movement towards right equality, there's always historically a white backlash. Right. Right. It's, it's consistent. Right. Right. And so this is not a new this is not a new dynamic for us. What it means, though, is it means there needs to be an awakening among black folks and our shared allies to a recognition that the things that we have established in terms of our rights are not anything that we can just hope that will become sustained just because now everybody believes that a woman has a right to control her body or that or that we should right try to honor the all of the resources and the violence that we bestowed upon black people to actually make them finally make them full citizens participants in this economy and this culture that Good, James Baldwin says it's the fire next time. You can't depend on your oppressors and their goodwill to dismantle the systems in which they benefit from. And so, I would say, I guess you would agree too, we can't depend on our oppressor to use logic. Mary Frances says, look, diversity means more revenue. Diversity yes. pays dividends. Yes. But in your framework, they don't care. It doesn't matter that it might mean more money dropping to my bottom line, because if I'm centering whiteness, that's all that matters. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. But now what I would say, though, is and what we saw this with George Floyd. Right. Because for decades, we've been trying to get rid of that Washington's Redskins name because it's overtly racist. You might as well call it the New York niggas. Right. I mean, that's literally how grotesque that professional football name was. But FedEx, after George Floyd, it was such a global 
response to that. I mean, they were from from Zimbabwe and Nigeria to France to Australia. They were throwing monuments in of white supremacy into the rivers. Right. It was a global response. And FedEx. Right. Because of that global response, literally went to right. Uh, right. To the to the organization and said, you need to change that name now or we will pull our billions dollars of your advertisement out today. It needs to happen today. It happened so immediately that they had to start the football season without a name. Uh, <laughs> the whole season called themselves the Washington football team. The Mississippi had that racist flag with the Confederate part of it in and all, all the George Floyds and all the whatever of the world you wouldn't think would change that. But the NCAA, after George Floyd said, if you continue to raise that flag, you will no longer be able to host any major collegiate uh, events, any bowl games, any final fours, any whatever. They changed it so fast that they didn't even have a replacement flag yet for it. Right. When that when that announcement came. And down. that's about the money. That's about the money. But it's well, also about I, want, power. I need both of you to hold those thoughts. Uh, we got to uh, take another uh, break when we come forward. want to talk about what states are doing. States like Florida, Texas and Kansas are trying to legislate out DEI programs, not only in their governments, but in private organizations in their states. Uh, stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Mary Francis, what do you make of the movement that we saw in the entertainment industry around their DEI professionals, a movement at Disney, Warner Brothers, Netflix, and the Film Academy? Uh, one of the headlines said that the Warner Brothers DEI person after decades was actually laid off. Uh, do those the changes in DEI departments in entertainment, uh, you know, the entertainment industry, does that concern you at all? Oh, absolutely. And a couple of those are my clients and have been my clients. And I know that uh, for um, some of it, and you know, I wrote the book called Black Fatigue. Some of it is just like, I can't take it anymore. I, I'm just, I'm out. Um, you made these, you know, you made these commitments. Um, you're not giving, you're not giving us the resources that, you know, that we need. Uh, we do um, heal. We're doing healing sessions now in, in, in corporations. Um, we call it refilling our cup. How can we, you know, how can you, um, how can you sustain and maintain your, your sense of well-being uh, in, in these organizations? I had one, I had one uh, chief diversity officer say to me, 2020 came, main stage now, black issues on the main stage, never have been. Cause you know, we couldn't talk about race. You know, I wrote a book called we, we can't talk about that at work, can't talk about race, religion, politics, and other polarizing topics. Never could talk about race, could talk about diversity, but not, not race. So now we can talk about race. So, and why can we talk about race? Because of a traumatizing experience. 2023, we've been pulled off the main stage. Now get out, get off the main stage. Not no longer can talk about race. Now we're being re-traumatized. She was telling me about in her corporation that they had set up um, a black executive forum. And the CEO has said, we can't call us the black executive forum anymore. Anymore, he said, because uh, there's only one executive committee at this organization, and the, the black executives, you know, are not a part a, a part of that. So every single day, folks who are in this work are are is just being uh, they're just being um you know, all of the initiatives are, are just being rolled back. We're seeing it with our work um, slow, much slower. We couldn't keep up with the demand in 2020. Now we're looking. Now we're looking for work. And so, you know, absolutely, we are seeing this this change. And I absolutely believe that we have to keep that out there. That was that we have to hold those organizations accountable. You know, in, in, in many different ways, we can hold them accountable. Call them out. You said you were going, you know, to do this. We had a client who who paid us a bunch of money and never did any work at all, nothing, and then canceled the contract. Mm. So uh, none of what 
uh, Mary Francis is saying is, is new, obviously, to you, Professor Eichhardt. This is what you do for a living. You study these historical uh, changes as they relate uh, to Black folks. I, I guess I'm really concerned about what we're seeing at the state level. So this isn't just private entities like corporations. This isn't just universities. But we have states like Texas and Florida that are going after DEI programs, uh, saying that they are going to defund uh, you know, programs and even make it illegal in their state to uh, promote certain kinds of programs. We have a Republican congressman who wants a bill passed that would make uh, any kind of reparations actions coming out of the state of Texas would ban those, would say you can't get financed if you engage in any kind of reparations action. So both at the state level and at the federal level, it seems like, you know, we are just under attack. And yes, we, we have to be vigilant. Yes, we have to you know lift our voices. But what else from a historical standpoint should we be doing given how we have been here before? Man, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think one of the things that we have to call attention to is the ways in which Toni Morrison says racism about distraction, right? And it puts black people in a position of always having to prove, right? Why do we need diversity? Why do we need equity? Not why do we need right? Um, as, instead of us saying, well, why do we need legacy admissions? <laughs> right? Why do we? Why are uh, so-called public schools in wealthier white um, suburbs financed at a higher level, able to pay teachers more, able to have better facilities, and we still call these same things public schools? Why is ninety percent of these uh, students coming from just three percent of the high schools? Why are you targeting these white elite high schools to fill up? these major universities like black people we're put on the defensive as if somehow we're the ones that are taking advantage of the system as opposed to the system the way it's historically taken advantage of us right. the average net worth of a black bostonian is eight dollars compared to two hundred and forty seven thousand dollars for a white person that's what we're talking about in terms of disparity eight dollars versus a quarter of a million dollars that's the legacy of slavery economically and so when you're in a situation where you have that type of disparity in terms of power and access, and yet we imagine that black folks somehow are getting some benefit, that becomes a problem. And then the other thing that I want to mention, too, is we have to stop with this people of color thing. Right. One of the one of the groups that pushed this affirmative action lawsuit is an Asian-American group. Right. Right. And for a long time, well, Asian American group that's being funded by by a white conservative, conservatives. Right, that white conservative. Right. And for a long time. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have solidarity with a people of color, but we also should be talking about there are people of color who have white privilege. I lived in Miami. I can tell you about like brown people who exercised with um, precision, ruthless precision, white supremacy as brown people, right? And so it's very important, like when we start talking about equity and diversity and inclusion, also to be able to point out the nuances of this dynamic and stop pretending that we're all in the same boat. We're not all in the same boat. Black people have a unique history in this country 
of being situated at the bottom, which then encourages people who are of color to usually stand on the backs of our oppression to advance their own positions in society. And we need to call that out and say that, right? Not in terms of saying like they don't face oppression, but stop kind of conflating all of our experiences as if it's all like relative. It's not relative. It's not, it's not, it's not. And what happens is when you start talking about anti-black racism, that's when you get shut down. Well, we just can't talk about black racism. We need to talk about Asian racism. We need to talk about LGBTQ and everything has to, you know, but you can talk about LGBTQ separately. You can talk about uh, gender discrimination separately, but as soon as you mention black, you, you can't talk about that. That's right. That's so right. you're absolutely it's right, It's professor. important that we own that, right? As black folk, it's important that we own that because the thing is, the society keeps telling us, oh, if you push back, then you're going to ruffle feathers mm -hmm. and it's going to cost you your promotion in this firm. It's going to cost you your, your position here in the, in the, the corporation. It's going to cost you tenure if you're talking about an academic like me. The truth of the matter is that... History tells us that when black folks fight back, when mm -hmm. black folks protest, when black folks say we have had enough, that's when America changes. Exactly. That exactly. is that is absolute. History is clear. Right. Exactly. King led, a, led him from a Birmingham jail. The white clergy came to him and said, yo, like, like we with you, King. Right. But, you know, you march without a permit. That's why you got locked up. And so all you need to do really is just abide by the law and and, and, and things will change over time. And famously, the famous retort by Martin Luther King was time doesn't change people. People change people. And historically, right, when a law is not just, it's not a law that we should abide by. Right. Yep. And yep. so we got to push. We got to like like what the sister said. There has to be when these companies, these universities, institutions say, oh, we believe in equity and diversity. We got to hold their feet to the fire. Right. Remind them of what they said. Remind them that we're not just along for the ride, but we are integral parts of these institutions. We help these institutions run. We are the brain trust of many of these institutions. We're not there just to look pretty or because somebody hooked us up. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that that part, that protest part, that resistance part, that vocal right pushback has to be part of what what I see as a new civil rights movement, because it is getting urgent. It's, it's getting urgent. And the only reason we got our moment in time in 2020 was because of the protests. That's, That's right. the only reason all these corporations came forward and put out all these statements. And one didn't want to outdo the other from a public relations perspective. Say, oh, XYZ company put out a statement. I guess we need to put out a statement, too. And they 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 were ill, ill conceived because they didn't know how in the hell they were going to um, actually um, make good on whatever that they said. And now they're not making good because they had no plan and they didn't really plan to make good. <laughs> he had his plan to issue a statement. Well, I am. We're out of time. Want to thank both of you. A really enlightening conversation. I'm a lot smarter. Our listeners and viewers are a lot smarter, I'm sure, because of this conversation. This is an issue, obviously, we are going to be tracking. I know that there is a white conservative organization somewhere that's recruiting white folks in the workplace to file an action to challenge diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in corporate America. Oh, because coming. that's it's the coming. next frontier. Oh, yeah. We can it's see coming. it coming. I'm a civil it's rights coming. lawyer. I'm an employment lawyer. Uh, white folks, that white woman that won that case against Starbucks 
of, uh, you know, I don't know what she won, 10, $20 million lawsuit. 20, $26 million. $26 mm-hmm. million lawsuit. That's all they needed. There's inspiration enough. There's the model. Uh, so we'll definitely continue this conversation, have both of you back. Professor. But they're Lee already Park. there. They're already in the corporations. They're already yeah. in there. They're there. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mary Frances Winters and Professor David Eichhardt. The next voice that you